All right, so welcome to lesson number four. This is Jews and Food. And man, do we have food. Isn't this great? What a delicious, uh, delicious dinner. Um, our tasting menu is absolutely on fire tonight. So here's the deal. Um, I think I've exhausted almost all my food jokes. We spoke about the guy who goes to the bakery, right? He gets overcharged. First of all, do we speak about Chinese food? That Jew, um, the Jewish people have been around for 3,300 years, right? China, the Chinese culture has been around for you know, 2,500 years. That gives 800 years that Jews didn't have Chinese food. We call those the Dark Ages. That's the joke. Okay, maybe we didn't, maybe we did. Either way, over the last three weeks, so we've explored um, the Jewish obsession with food. And, we spoke, we, and from the beginning, from lesson one, we established this very important principle, and that is, that from the very beginning of creation, food is an important part of the human experience. Not only because we need to eat, but because so many of the biblical stories and lessons center around and focus on food. We have Adam and Eve with, the, with food. We have Noah with food. We have Abraham with food. We have Joseph with food. There's so much food. The Exodus, which we'll speak about today, the Exodus is preceded by a meal. You know, the Jews sit down and they have the Paschal Lamb. It's a meal. So much of biblical lore, the stories of the Torah, which Torah is not just a history book, but Torah is really an instruction manual for life. So many of those stories are uh, involving food. And we explain from the beginning, from, from, from evening one of this course, that the reason for that on a deeper level is because food holds, in, in a very uh, important way, food holds the meaning of life. What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life on a spiritual level is to find the purpose, the divine spark in everything around us. In other words, when we look at something physical to not just see the surface, but to really see the soul of that thing. And what experience is really filled with that type of discernment? That is the eating experience, the gastronomical, the eating experience. Is it just going to be a physical experience that satisfies our bodies? Or will it also be an experience that nurtures and that nurses our soul? That's the question, and that's what we choose. Um, you know, that type of, that, that those are the two options that, that are literally before us every time we sit down and eat. So when we eat the food, and we're enjoying the food, and we're gaining the energy, the question is, are we mindful that the energy can be used for a higher purpose, and, and thus is returning back to its source? That's the challenge, and really that's the calling of eating, and that's why it's so important. We also spoke about um, what kosher food is, that's where the sparks are accessible. We spoke about last week the idea of meat and how the fats and the blood of the animal are, are, pro, are prohibited. And even when you have kosher meat and kosher milk, it's also prohibited. We spoke about the idea that you could have something that otherwise is kosher, but in the wrong context, right? It's not, um, it's not upliftable. You can't elevate it in the wrong context. Context matters, right? You can have something beautiful to say to someone, but if it's at the wrong time, right, it's not, it's not going to work. So it's, it's context is so important. Um, and that's true also in our spiritual efforts. And uh, with regard to the avoda, the, the spiritual service that involves eating. But tonight we ask another question. And that is, can the eating experience or is the eating experience in and of itself a holy experience? Because up until now, we've explained that when it comes to food, really it's a means to an end. When we're eating, we're really taking 
right? We're, we're accessing the divine spark, that energy within the food. And then we're, we're, we're digesting it. We're taking it inside of ourselves. And then we're elevating it for a higher purpose. Oh, yeah, the knife. Um, so that is... Yes. Yeah. So that is the typical way we understand the value of food. Right? Food is a means to an end. When you're eating, you're gaining the energy to then do the next thing. To give you an example, and I think this is important, um, think about when you fill up your, uh, fill up um, at the gas station, you fill up your car, right? So what happens? You're driving, and then that, the light goes off, right? Oh, right, Logan, um, you, need, you need to fill up. You pull into the gas station. This is obviously, um, you know, old school gasoline powered cars. You pull up to the gas station, you fill up, and then you keep on driving. It's very clear why you're filling up. I've never seen anybody take a selfie while filling up gas. It's like, oh, look, I got the good stuff. I got the 93. I've never seen anyone do that. No, no but by food, man, I was taking pictures of this food tonight. Earlier, I'm like, this is great. I've never taken a picture of a pump. It's never happened. Why? Because when it comes to gasoline, it's very clear that this is a means to an end. It's not about the filling up. It's about having the, 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 the power, sort of the fuel to keep on moving. Now with food, it seems that we're saying it's a similar experience. We're eating the food to access the sparks, to access the energy, to then do the next great thing. Study Torah, do a mitzvah, pray. Question is, is there value or is there spirituality in the eating itself? It seems that, and tonight we're going to focus on two areas of, of, of eating that seem to be a mitzvah with, uh, in and of themselves. Not just because we're going to use the energy for a higher purpose, but the, the eating itself is a mitzvah. Number one, matzah on Passover is a mitzvah in and of itself. It's not because we're going to eat the matzah and then go to synagogue and pray with that energy. No, eating matzah itself on Passover is a biblical mitzvah. We'll talk about this in a second. And the second area of focus, I'm just kind of laying it out. The second area of focus is eating on Shabbat. The Shabbat food that we eat is itself a mitzvah, not because... We're then going to have the energy to go to synagogue and pray and, and do mitzvot. No, in and of itself, Shabbat food is a mitzvah. The question is why. The question is how. How does that work? And that's what we're going to explore tonight. So we have two areas of focus. Number one, matzah. Number two, Shabbat. So let's begin with matzah. So here's a very quick, um, a quick recap of the historical recap. Let me set the scene. We all know the scene. We've probably seen the movie about this. There are many movies made about this. The scene is ancient Egypt, biblical Egypt. The Jews are still enslaved. The Jewish people number about two to three million people, including men, women, and children. The Jews are still slaves, but plague after plague has hit Egypt. No, God has not taken any pauses, right? Actually, there were pauses between the plagues. But the, Egypt has been hit for, for, for about a year or even more than a year with the, with the, with the 10 plagues. Um, actually, a little less than a year. Each plague was about a month. Egypt is breaking. The tide is turning. It's the night of the Exodus. But before the Exodus happens, God has a message for the Jewish people. He tells Moses to tell the people, here's what's going to happen. Get together with your families. First of all, sorry. First of all, you need to get a lamb Find a lamb, tie it to your bedpost on the 10th day of the month. A few days later, on the 14th, 
you're going to slaughter the animal. Take the blood, put it on the doorpost, right? The original paint the town red. Kidding, right? Painting the doorpost red. Then that evening, the night of the 15th, because remember, the Jewish days start at night. So the night of the 15th of the month of Nisan, sit down, roast, roast the lamb, roasted lamb, fire roasted lamb, along with some, uh, some spicy herbs and matzah, which we think was soft back in the day, right? Not like our burnt matzah, but like a nice uh, lafa style thing. Either way, matzah, marar, and the paschal lamb. The matzah, the bitter herbs, and the lamb. And eat it together, God says, as a family. And if you don't have enough members of the family to knock off a whole lamb, invite your neighbor over, join up two or three or more families, nothing should be left over. Nothing is allowed to be left over for the next day. By the way, one of the psychological explanations of this is, um, is that it shows the idea of wealth and freedom. It's kind of like you're going to eat and you're going to eat a lot. You're going to eat a whole animal. Not a little bit, not a little piece. You can eat the whole animal. Okay. That was the commandment. This, as I referenced, I think in, in probably the first class, I call this jokingly the Last Supper. This is the, the Last Supper before the Exodus. God doesn't say, and, and by the way, this was a mitzvah. It was a mitzvah to eat the Paschal lamb, to eat the bitter herbs, and to eat the matzah. This was a biblical, this was a divine commandment. This was the second commandment we were given um, that was given to the Jewish people. Number one was the Jewish calendar. Number two was the Paschal Lamb. This is from the, from the initial commandments given to Am Yisrael, to Bnei Yisrael, to the Jewish people as a collective. In this context, the eating itself was a mitzvah. It wasn't that they were told to eat in order to do something else. The eating itself constituted the mitzvah. Now, for the last 2,000 years, we don't have the roasted lamb at the Seder. We commemorate this every year, of course, on Passover. We don't have the ro- we don't eat the roasted lamb. There's a shank bone on the Seder plate, but the shank bone is not a roasted lamb. We don't we don't do that. Why? Because we don't have a temple. We don't have the holy temple, and therefore we don't we don't want to emulate it. We don't have that part of the mitzvah. Even the bitter herbs that we eat, according to most opinions, is only a rabbinic um, commemoration, but not a biblical mitzvah. However, the matzah is a biblical mitzvah. Eating matzah on Passover is a biblical mitzvah. And it's not a mitzvah because you need the energy to do something else. It, the mitzvah is eating the matzah itself. And the question is why? Why is that a mitzvah? What is the significance? How is eating itself something holy? So let's jump into the text. We have a lot to get to tonight. And I want to really take you on a tour of Jewish thought about matzah and about Shabbat food because it is absolutely fascinating. So the way we're going to start this is by first focusing on the symbolism of the matzah. And the first area of symbolism we're going to look at uh, when we think about matzah is, well, well you know, let me ask you. When you think about matzah, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the unique feature of matzah? Crunchy. Crunchy? Good. What else? Dry. Dry. Good. What else? Cardboard. Cardboard. <laughs> I always joke. Is it the box or is it the matzah? May taste the same. Unleavened. Thin, flat, unleavened. Good. It doesn't rise. What's the symbolism? What's the significance of that? Let's go. We have a bunch of texts on this. Text number one. Jamie, do you want to get us started? Text number one. This is the Mechilta. Mechilta is a Midrashic text. 
And here the Midrash explains, um, uh, uh, sorry, here the Midrash explains the significance of the matzah not rising. Take it away. The verse states, you shall eat matzah for seven days. This might be understood to refer to any unleavened bread. However, the verse states, you shall not eat leaven. This teaches us that one only fulfills the obligation of matzah if it is made from a substance that can become leavened, namely the five species of wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye. However, one does not fulfill one's obligation with matzah made from rice, millet, sorghum, legumes, or poppy seeds because they do not become leavened and their rising is merely a form of decay. Listen to this. In halacha, in, in Jewish law, the following nuance is present. In order to be kosher matzah, it has to be something that otherwise could have risen, but you arrested that process. If, if it doesn't have the natural properties of leavening, and that why, that's why it's flat, that's not matzah. Matzah has to be flat, but it has to be something that could have not been flat, but you made flat. Such a Jewish concept, right? You think flat, flat is flat. Let me, let me take something that could never rise. Nope. It has to be something that could have risen if you gave it enough time, but because you did it so quickly, and you worked the dough, and you pounded it down, and you made holes in it, whatever, it didn't rise. That's what matzah is. Well, what's the significance? The Rambam, Maimonides, in his Mor Nebuchim Guide for the Perplexed, he has an incredible idea. Take a look at text number two. Dasi, please read text number two um, from Rambam. God commanded the Jewish nation to eat the Pesach sacrifice with haste. This is why it was accompanied with matzah, which can be prepared quickly. The reason they were told to eat in this manner was so that none of them would delay and fail to leave along with the rest of the nation leaving him at the mercy of the Egyptians. God commanded us to do these things eternally, so we would remember the manner in which the exodus occurred. It's incredible, no? What does, he, what does Rambam say? He says, you know why they were told to make matzah and to do it quickly? Because God didn't want anyone to be stuck in the kitchen. It's like, oh no, I have my favorite recipe. Oh, I need like four hours for it to rise. We're out. Whatever you make tonight, this last night in, in Egypt, whatever you make, whatever's on the menu, chick-chock, it's going to be fast. Why is that no one remains stuck behind or no one is even tempted to remain behind? Yeah, Mira. They knew that the Pesach, that the actual lamb was coming, so why didn't they just like make bread beforehand? Did they not know they were supposed to eat bread with it? So that's the, well, I mean, they were told this, they were, they were actually given this commandment on Rosh Chodesh on the first day of the month of Nisan, which means they had 15 days, they had two weeks to prepare, which means they could have made bread, to your point, to strengthen your question, they could have made actual bread a day before. And yet it seems that there's a certain symbolism in the food of the night of Passover being made quickly. Think about it, you're roasting the lamb. It's not like snow, it's not, not snow, not slow cooked, right, or smoked, I mean, Right? Barbecue fest. It's like three or four days. You Thursday night we're starting, right? This Sunday, you know, morning barbecue festival starts Thursday night, if not earlier. This is, we're going to move. And the symbolism is when the Exodus comes, we're going to move. 
It's about, it's about um, evoking haste. So yes, they could have made bread, but the symbolism would have been lost. The symbolism is, we're moving. We're moving quickly. Um, this is clarified and emphasized in text number three. We have a few texts that's, that speak to a similar theme, the Abarbanel. It's one of our go-tos in this course. The Abarbanel, one of the great biblical commentaries, says uh, a very similar concept in text number three. All right, Meira, please take it away. God commanded the Jews to eat the Pesach sacrifice while still in Egypt to commemorate the miracle he would do later that night to pass over their doors and save them from the plague of the first court. Similarly, he commanded them to eat matzah while still in Egypt to commemorate the upcoming redemption in which they would leave Egypt quickly and hastily. Seemingly, God should have given them the commandment of matzah after leaving Egypt. However, if he would have done so, perhaps they would not feel the haste of the redemption and would not recognize the true reason for this commandment. Instead, God gave them the commandment of matzah while still in Egypt. Since this was the first commandment that they had received, they were extremely careful with it, and kneaded their dough, assuming they would have enough time to bake their matzahs in Egypt as they had been commanded. However, before they had a chance to bake the dough, Pharaoh and his servants arrived and told them to leave Egypt. They left hastily, carrying the unbaked dough on their shoulders, as they were unable to delay and bake it in Egypt as they had planned. The Jews and their wives were pained, afraid that their dough would rise and they would fail to fulfill the first commandment they had been given. When they arrived at Sukkot, or another location suitable for baking, they inspected the dough and discovered that it had become matzah and had not leavened. All this enabled them to recognize the haste in which they left Egypt and that God had performed a great miracle for them. Interesting. He kind of goes through the story, right? They were, they were supposed to bake it, but then they had to run out, so it baked on their shoulders. Whatever it is, the bottom line is, the point here is that it's quick, and that haste reminds us of how quickly the exodus happened. By the way, there's an important message, I think, that I'm, that I'm just thinking about now as, as we're reading this. You know, sometimes you're, you're stuck in a problem, and you don't see any way out. And there's like no solution. Like you need something. You need like something to move, but like nothing's moving. And then something moves. And in a second, the solution is here. But until you have that solution, until that solution presents itself, it's almost like you don't see any possibility. But then the moment the possibility presents, boom. Doors open. That's it. Problem solved. And it's kind of like that way with the redemption. The Jews were there for hundreds of years. And then the exodus happened. Just like that. So to remind us of the haste, we have the matzah. All of this, again, is just we're, we're exploring the symbolism of matzah and why the eating of matzah itself is a mitzvah because it's so symbol, it's so laden with, uh, so rich with meaning. All right, we're going to keep on going. Let's look at the Sefer HaChinuch. Um, this is a work, beautiful work. Actually, we should probably do a, do a class on this. Sefer HaChinuch takes each of the 613 mitzvot and explains the rationale. Short philosophical, spiritual rationale for every mitzvah. It's beautiful. Really, uh, really powerful text. Uh, um, um, uh, uh, yeah, text. Text number four. Mira, please read this one. The reason for the commandment to bring Pesach sacrifice is so that the Jews will always remember the great miracles God performed for them when they left Egypt. There you go. All right. So he says it very simply. What's the reason for the Pesach sacrifice and the matzah as well? It's to remember the great miracles. Okay, now, all of that explains why matzah is symbolic, why matzah is flat, why we bake it very quickly, to remind us of the haste of the, of the, of the exodus and the power, you know, the rush of the miracle and the suddenness of, the, of, of, of freedom 
And the fact that God performed us, uh, you know, performed these great miracles for us, so we eat different types of food. Wonderful. Let's now explore the symbolism of matzah from a Kabbalistic perspective. All of this was from the perspective of classic, more classic, um, philosophical Jewish thought, right? The philosophy and the Midrash and Barbanel and the Chinuch and, and, and Rambam. Okay, but now let's look at texts like Zohar, Kabbalah, Hasidus, and let's see what the mysticism of matzah looks like. Um, and so the first thing we're going to look at is a text from the Zohar. The Zohar, I'm going to set this up for a quick moment. The Zohar is going to reference a statement that I believe is found in the Talmud. And the statement goes like this. Until a child has tasted grain, the child does not know how to utter the words, Abba, Father. What does that mean? Typically, <coughs> as children mature as they get older, so, um, sorry, when it, you know, a baby starts off only you know, eating very basic things, milk, then, then, then um, what does a baby eat? Like mushed foods. It's been a while, right? But like pureed foods, like, you know, they have those little baby food things. And then eventually graduates to more solids, grains and solids, etc. You don't start off a baby with, uh, with a piece of challah. It's not, it's not a thing. And so the Talmud says, roughly around the time that you introduce to the child um, grains, is roughly around the time when the child begins language development. And the Talmud says that until the child eats grain, the child does not know how to call out Abba, how to call father or mother. So based on this, the Zohar explains it spiritually with regards to matzah. Take it away. When a person enters this world, he does not know anything until he tastes bread. Once he eats bread, he is aroused to know and to recognize. Similarly, when the Jews left Egypt, they did not know anything until God gave them bread to taste from the supernal land, regarding which the verse states, the land from which bread emerges. At that time, the Jews were able to know and recognize God. A child does not know and recognize until he tastes the bread of this world. Similarly, Israel did not know and recognize supernal matters until they tasted from the supernal bread. Isn't that interesting? He says, look at when this happens. When were the Jews meant to eat matzah? Right before the Exodus. They were in a state of spiritual or national infancy. They were babies. This was a new nation being born. And so God says, like a baby, right? You need to have some bread. Okay, I guess we would start that a little bit later, but I guess God says, we're ready to start with the bread. The bread, in this case, being the matzah. The matzah was giving an awareness. The matzah gives. It's, I guess you would say, I'm not, listen, I'm not a nutritional, uh, pediatric nutritional nutritionist. Based on this, it would seem that there are properties in the actual bread that are helpful for a child's development. In this case, the matzah is helpful for, uh, the, for the Jewish development and perception of spirituality and awareness of, of, of the source, of Abba, of God. Now, text number six. Can someone, excuse me, can someone tell me what supernal means? I don't know. Yeah, spiritual. Oh. Yeah, that which is above. Um, at least that's the way it's used. I'm assuming that that's the, that's the meaning. All right, now, text number six. This is, again, from the Zohar. We have a bunch of quotes from the Zohar. I think we have three in a row. The Zohar is, uh, the translation of that is the Book of Radiance. It's the primary work of Kabbalah. And it, it shares spiritual insights on all matters of Jewish practice, including matzah. So here we go. Text 6, I'll read. The commandment to eat matzah on Pesach is a remembrance for all generations on the secret of faith. 
It has been established that at that time, Israel, sorry, that at the time, that at that time Israel left the secret of idol worship and entered the secret of faith. The secret has been established in many places. If you notice, there's a lot of use of the word secret. Raza. The reason is that's how the Zohar speaks. When it talks about like what something symbolizes, it uses the word instead of a, it symbolizes, it uses the word this is the secret of. That's, that's, its, that's its word for, for symbolism. So he says, what is the symbolism of matzah? The symbol of matzah is faith. Right? Just like a child calls Abba, recognizes the father and the mother, the source, when eating grain, so too we recognize our source, God, when eating matzah. So matzah is the food of faith, to recognize Abba, to recognize Father, our Father in heaven. And it says, as the Zohar says, that when the Jews left Egypt, they left behind the idol worship, which is a belief, a faith, in all sorts of other powers. And instead, they had faith. They, 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 they grabbed onto the faith in only Hashem, and only God Almighty. Make sense? That's the secret of matzah. Matzah is food of faith. Okay, now let's take a look at text number seven. Text number seven continues this theme and, um, and brings it into, um, into greater focus. Why may leaven not be eaten on Pesach out of respect for the bread known as matzah? Now that Israel merited it to a higher form of bread, would it not be fitting for leaven to be removed and not seen at all? If so, why is the sacrifice brought on Shavuot made from leaven? Uh, so let me just explain the question of the Zohar. The Zohar is asking, if matzah is a very special, very lofty type of bread, it, it, it imbues faith in us, it gives us a spiritual understanding of God, if that's the case, then why do we ever have bread? Why not always eat matzah 24-7? Here we go. This can be compared to a king who had an only son who fell ill. One day he desired to eat. They said, let the prince eat this medicine, and until he eats it, no other food should be found in the house. They did so. Once he ate the medicine, he said, from now on he may eat whatever he desires, and, will, and it will not harm him. Similar, similarly, when Israel left Egypt, they did not know the foundation and secret of faith. God said, let Israel taste a cure, and until they eat this cure, other food should not be seen. Once they ate matzah, which is a cure to enter and know the secret of faith, God said, from now on, leaven may be seen and eaten because it will not harm them. So the Zohar explains so beautifully why, why it is that at the time of the Exodus, why the main staple was matzah and not not chametz, not leavened items. Why? Because again, matzah symbolizes this pure injection of faith in God, and they needed that. They needed that kickstart. They were spiritually ill because they had, for hundreds of years, they had been, um, they had witnessed, and they had even been subject and even participated in idol worship. They were steeped in idolatry, and so now to, to get them off of that, they had to go cold turkey. They had to first of all go cold turkey, and they had to have this infusion of the spiritual medicine of matzah that abuse faith. But once they were stable in faith, then you can introduce the other food as well. And so that's why they had to start off with, only, with an only matzah diet, but already a little, bit, a little while later, they could introduce um, more into their, um, into their um, repertoire. Now, text eight 
is a text from the Kudetari. This is the, the Alter Rebbe's discourses, the founder of Chabad. And he explains something fascinating. He explains why it is that matzah, I mean, we know by now, based on the Zohar, the three texts that we have from the Zohar, that clearly matzah is a food that gives us an appreciation of God or an awareness or faith in God. The question is, where do you see that in the actual substance of matzah? How is that symbolized in the actual matzah itself? And here he, he shares a beautiful insight into where the, the physical characteristics of matzah um, lead to faith. All right, Dasi, please take away text 8. We can now understand the commandment to eat matzah on Pesach. The Zohar explains that just as a child could not know and grasp any intellect in the material, material realm until he tastes bread, similarly, when Israel left, left Egypt, they did not know how to understand God's greatness until they ate matzah, a bread that emerges from the supernal land. The divine power found within this bread gives vitality to the person and God and soul, to know and recognize he who created the world, just as physical bread brings life in its basic sense into the intellectual soul. So just to pause here for a moment, all that he said so far um, in this discourse, all that he said is a repeat of what the Zohar says, which we read. But here, the next paragraph, subsequently, he's going to give us a deeper explanation, or he's going to explain what this means. Leaven, which rises and extends higher, demonstrates height and elevation, as opposed to matzah, which does not rise at all. Applying this to our godly service, leaven represents pride and the coarseness of Khalifa, while matzah represents lowliness and submissiveness, to nullify one's personal will before that of God. Now, when the Jews were exiled in Egypt, they were found in an extremely low state. Their intellect and emotions were constricted and limited by the physicality of the world, which caused them to feel their own existence separate from God. The redemption from Egypt occurred when God himself was revealed to the Jewish nation, as he is beyond Seder Hishtal Shalut. This revelation instilled within them a sense of self-mortification and awe of God that enabled them to leave their constrictions and limitations. The Zohar also calls faith. Faith, too, requires self-nullification, to put your intellect to the side and refrain from looking for reasons Instead, simply believing the truth of pure faith. This is imbued in the soul through the commandment to eat so in So, that's a, so there was a lot in there, very um, dense mystical text with a lot of terms that might be familiar to some, but maybe not familiar to everyone. Klipa, Seder, Hishtashla, these are some terms that are Kabbalistic terms. I, I want to just give you the very easy version of this, and then we can go a little bit deeper. The easy version of this is the intention of the Alter Rebbe is to explain, the author of this text, is to explain where you see in the physical dimensions of matzah this idea of, of awareness of God and faith, faith in God. And he says, it's very simple. Matzah, unlike leaven, matzah is flat. And flat represents being humble, lack of ego. Whereas that which is uh, leavened, is puffed up, is ego. What's the difference between an entity with ego and an entity that is lacking ego? This is very simple. When you have an inflated ego, then who's your God? Yourself. You worship yourself, you worship others, whatever it is, you, you're, you're stuck in yourself, inside yourself. You're your own creator and you worship your creator. Whereas when you're lacking ego, when, you are, when your ego is deflated a little bit, then you can have an awareness and appreciation for the actual source, for the source that created you. You can be a little bit more humble. You can be you are more humble, and therefore you can have an appreciation. You can recognize 
your Father in Heaven, you can have faith because faith also requires to let go, to let go of needing to understand everything and figure everything out. I saw a letter um, years ago that the Rebbe wrote to someone. It's an, actually an English letter. You may know this, that many the Rebbe got more mail each week than the President of the United States. The Rebbe got thousands and thousands of letters each week. People wrote in questions asking advice, blessings, spiritual direction, practical direction, everything and everything in between. You, you, whatever you can imagine, the Rebbe got letters about it. I once saw a letter where somebody was claiming that they just have, they have a problem with faith. They don't have faith. Either it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. This is faith. Suspend your rationale. Believe in something. <coughs> this fellow says, unless I understand it, I'm not buying it. Rebbe responds the following. He says, your assertion that you only act based on knowledge and not faith is not true. He says, have you ever stepped on an airplane? If you've ever stepped on an airplane, you have entered into a realm of faith. Do you know, he writes, do you know that the pilots are qualified to fly? Do you know that the aircraft is, is fit to fly, is, um, is safe? How do you know that? Oh, you trust? You have faith? Well, they wouldn't if not. Okay. But you don't know directly. You have faith. We often use, we, com- present company excluded, people often use the, um, the excuse of like, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't operate by faith. I once, a similar concept, I was once listening to a podcast and um, it, was about, it was about how much of science is actually faith. There was a conference took place in Europe and at this conference of like top scientists, Someone gets up there and says, question, how do we know that the, that, that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around? Everyone's like, well, because, you know, they, somebody said it. Copernicus. Yeah, Copernicus. <laughs> also relativity. No, but this was, not, this was not a Jewish podcast. This was a, you know, this was totally not Jewish. And the point of this, of this little exercise was that no one in the audience actually had first-hand knowledge of the evidence that demonstrates that. It's all like, well, that's what we know. That's what we've said, right? Which means that all of those scientists, those big scientists in the room, took something as faith. For them, it was faith. Because unless you've seen, unless you've seen, done the form, unless you've done the work, you asserting that this is the case is a matter of faith. You're trusting someone else. You're believing in someone else. So people say, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't operate by faith. We do it all the time. You're driving down the highway. You have faith that the other people are not crazy. right? You're operating on faith. You're trusting. You're also hoping. So the point over here is that matzah is the food of faith. And where do you see that? In the fact that it's flat. Because it takes humility to let go of your mind a little bit, to not have to figure everything out, right? To need to know everything and say, I'm not going to do anything until I, until I understand it is, is it's a, you could say it's a good thing, but it's also an assertion of ego. Like I need, it has to make sense to me before I do anything. Or as the Rebbe wrote many times in other letters, 
you, you will turn on the light switch to turn on the lights. You know, you'll hit the light switch even though you don't know how that works, right? It works. I mean, that you could see works. So the point is that matzah is this food of faith. And it's a holy food. It's a sacred food. What's not here in the text, I don't think we have it at all over here. Now, the next piece is Shabbos, the second piece, which we'll get to in a second. It says that on Passover, matzah is both the food of faith, which we've expressed at length, and also the food of healing. And the truth is, it's the same. First night is food of faith. Second night, it's food of healing. But as the mystics say, the two are intertwined. When you have faith, that's when the healing comes. First of all, on a physical level, the positivity, you know, when you have faith and you have trust and you have positivity, you have hope, then that's, uh, you know, that's good for health. A positive oh, um, outlook um, actually creates that positive, uh, you know, um, um, increase in the healing. But even on a spiritual level, but, but, or on a spiritual level, the idea of faith is itself healing. Okay, now all of that is with regards to... What, this one? Yeah. Sure, absolutely. All of this is vis-a-vis, you probably need one of these guys. Um, all of this is with regards to matzah. So what we've discovered is that matzah is not, a, is not it's, when we eat matzah, the matzah itself is a mitzvah, which means that it's not like regular food that we're eating the food, and inside the food is a divine spark that we're then using to do another mitzvah. The matzah itself is a mitzvah. You don't need to do another mitzvah with the matzah energy. This is a mitzvah. And why is it a mitzvah? It's food of knowledge. It's food of faith. It's food of healing. It reminds us of the miracles. It reminds us of the haste in which we were taken out of Egypt. And for all of those reasons, it's a mitzvah. The second topic we're going to focus on tonight is Shabbos. Shabbos food. So there is a mitzvah on Shabbos. To have enjoyment. The karasa le Shabbat Oneg. Oneg Shabbos. Shabbat is a day to enjoy ourselves. According to our sages, how do we enjoy ourselves? One of the ways is through good food. So eating itself on Shabbos is a mitzvah. Now, I just gave you outside what text 9 and 10 are saying. Let's do it inside. Who read the last text? I think Dasi did, right? Okay. Mira, please read text 9. If you will restrain your foot because of the Sabbath and performing your affairs on my holy day, and you will call the Sabbath a delight, and you will call the day the Lord has sanctified a day that is honored, and you will honor it by not doing your ways, by not pursuing your affairs, and speaking forbidden words. Now, but that's you, so that's we're kind of leaving it hanging. If you do all this, then you'll be blessed. I mean, that's kind of the end of it. But what does he say? If you do what? If you restrain your foot from, you know, from work, and if you call... The Sabbath, a delight. So two things. Number one, abstention from work and enjoying it. So here we go. Text number 10. Uh, Merav, please read this one. This is the Radak. Uh, this is text 10 where it says, if you will restrain. If you will restrain your foot because of the Sabbath. This is a negative command to refrain from leaving the city's borders and performing forbidden types of work. And you will call the Sabbath a delight. This is a positive command to find physical delight on Sabbath, on Shabbos. <laughs> Did it say Shabbos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It so switched it from Sabbath through, to Shabbos. Yeah. Through making Shabbos different from the rest of the week, you will remember how God created the world from nothingness and rested on the seventh day. As a result, you will praise and exalt God with your mouth and heart. 
and your soul will find delight in it. So here we go. You see clearly in this commentary, the Radak, on the verses in Isaiah that we quote in text 9, that what is the physical delight that we find on Shabbos, on Shabbat? It's with tasty foods. What now, does it mean restrain your foot? Restrain your foot means not to... Um, in other words, don't make it a day of travel or a day of otherwise recreation and, and work. That, that's all included in the idea of restraining your foot. And then, and then owning the light is a reference primarily to eating. And the truth is, this is canonized in the Shulchan of the Code of Jewish Law. Tom, please read text 11. How should, we, how should one make the Shabbos pleasurable? In the days of the sages of Gemara, they would derive pleasure by partaking of large fish and a dish of cooked spinach. For these foods were considered pleasurable in that era. In every place people should take pleasure on Shabbos according to the local practice, partaking of those foods and beverages that they consider pleasurable. It's interesting, by the way, just to pause for a quick second, that, that um, the Shulchan Aruch, the, the Code of Jewish Law, says that it's very context, it's very contextual. Just because in the times of the Gemara, which is going back 1,800 years, they loved spinach, right? I mean, Popeye also, but like, it doesn't mean that necessarily that's what's in, you know, in vogue in the local land. Eat whatever you enjoy. Continue, please. There is no specific obligation to eat meat or drink wine on Shabbos. The common practice is to partake of them only because most people presumably derive pleasure from eating meat more than eating other foods and from drinking wine more than drinking other beverages. For this reason, people should be generous in their consumption of meat and wine according to their capacity and financial resources. So it's interesting, if someone's a vegetarian and they don't derive pleasure from eating meat, it's clear, this is by the way, the outer of Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch Harav is like the Chabad. So it's clear that you don't have to push yourself to eat meat because it's all about what you enjoy. So if you enjoy it, great. So when we say that typically it's meat and um, wine and meat on Shabbos, that was a statement that was directed, I don't know if we could say to most people, but certainly back then it was most people, like a luxurious beverage was wine. Luxurious food was meat. So then Shabbos should be the day to enjoy, to indulge. Yeah. What about, uh, I have a friend who uh, he said his, his, his mother was so concerned if somebody didn't have fish at their Shabbos meal, she would like send it over to them. Like... So again, you have, there's halacha and there's tradition. So in Jewish law, the main criteria is oneg, what you enjoy. If you don't, if you don't like fish, then that's not enjoyable. If you're neutral about fish, there is symbolism in certain foods. And tradition and symbolism, and so to hit those lines... That's why people are like, oh no, have the fish, have the meat, have the wine. Speaking of which, I promised this last week, and I'm going to deliver on the promise. Numerology. Remember I teased that at the end of last week? Gematria. Let me explain very quickly. So in Hebrew, every Hebrew letter is associated with a number. Okay, so starting, and I should mention, there are different ways, different methodologies of gematria, of numerology, but the most basic and well-used version is Here's how it works. The first letter Aleph is one. Letter Bet is two. Gimel, three. Dalit, four. Hey, five. Vav, six. Zion, seven. Ches, eight. Tes, nine. Yud, ten. Ten letters, one through ten. Letter number 11 is the letter Chaf. 
20. Lamed, 30. Mem, 40. Nun, 50. Samach, 60. Ayin, 70. Pei, 80. Tzadik, 90. Kuf, letter number 20, I guess. Uh, 19, uh, 20. Uh, um, 19 is 100. The letter Reish is 200. Shin is 300. Tough is 400. So it's 1 through 10. And then 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 200, 300, 400. Those are your 22 letters. What day of the week is Shabbos? Seven. Seven. Wouldn't you know it? Take the numerology of the famous Shabbat foods. Reduce them down to a single digit, and you get seven. Let's start with wine. Yayin in Hebrew. Yayin. Yud, yud, nun. Yud is 10. Yud is 10, and nun is 50. 50 plus 20 is 70. Seven plus zero. Reduce it down to one digit. Seven. Okay? Let's keep it going. Basar is meat. Basar is meat. Bet is two. Shin is 300. Resh is 200. Help me out here. What do we have here? 507. 50, no, Bays. No, it's 2. 502. 5 plus 0 plus 2. 7. Dag is fish. That's easy. Four, da, dollar gimel. Four plus three is seven. Chala. Oh, what's chala? Ches is eight. Lamed is thirty. Thirty-eight plus five. Hey, is five. Is forty-three. Four plus three, seven. It's incredible. It's incredible. There's so many Shabbat foods. I even saw somebody where they wanted to like chalent and kugel. You know, they it depends. Once you use other words, you can spell it different ways. So you can almost like, you know, make it work, shoehorn it in. But it's so interesting how a lot of these Shabbos foods. Anyway, the point is that on Shabbos, there is a mitzvah. There's a biblical, it's from, uh, from Yermio, from Isaiah. There's an, it, there's an instruction, a, a scriptural instruction to have oneg, to have delight, to enjoy yourself. And the way we canonize that in the law is, I mean, what? How do you, how do you legislate enjoyment? Enjoy this day. Ah, what do I do? Have fun. <laughs> so we've legislated a meal. Enjoy the food. Take a look. Oh, no. Text swap. So let me ask the following question before we get to the, fi- the grand finale. Here's the question. Shabbos, it's not, when we eat on Shabbos, we are sitting down at the Shabbos table and we're eating a Shabbos meal. It's not like eating on the weekday where the food that we're eating is meant to be used for another mitzvah. This itself, the meal itself, this is the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to enjoy right here, right now. And our question is, the last question of this series, how is the eating itself on Shabbat, how is that itself a mitzvah? I know we said the mitzvah is to enjoy yourself and there's a way to enjoy, but how do we conceptualize that typically the sparks that are encased and encrusted in a crusty exterior, in a klipa, in a shell, that you can access it just by enjoyment? How does that work? And so we're going to get to the final idea. And it's a, such a beautiful idea about Shabbos food. And it's perfect because tomorrow night is Shabbos already, so we can have this meditation. I've heard two opposite things about eating before Shabbos. Before Shabbos, okay. Yeah. One is that you shouldn't eat before the Shabbos meal so that you're hungry and you enjoy it more. Yeah. And the other is that you should eat before the Shabbos meal so that you enjoy it because it's Shabbos, not because you're hungry. Good. Good. 
Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> like most things in Judaism. There's, a, there's another idea about it. That you're supposed to have a little bit of a taste, a little pre-Shabbat taste to make sure that the food is good and that you, know, and you, get, you get excited about the Shabbos meal when you have a little bit of a taste, but not too much. So I think everything balances out. You're, you're having a little bit, you're tasting it, you're not filling yourself up too much, but you're right. But maybe you should be full so that you're eating only for enjoyment. Yeah, welcome to, yeah, that's, that's like the most classic Jewish contradiction ever. So what do we do? We probably eat <laughs> in, in resolution of that. I want to end, I want to conclude with the following idea, and it's such a beautiful idea. Oh, before, uh, I don't want to conclude yet. I want to share some more insights. I don't want to wrap this up yet. Do you know why we eat kefilta fish on Shabbos? Why did that become traditional? I'll tell you why. Yes, the bones. It's because on Shabbos, oh, and that, that deals with, that, 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 that's the issue, that's text 12. Don't keep jumping back like that. No, 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 but it, it actually connects. Okay. There is one of the 39 prohibitions of Shabbat. There's 39 prohibited labors. One of them is called borer. It, in English, we would spell B-O-R-E-R, borer. What is borer? Borer means selecting or separating. So here's, here's what it would look like. Imagine you had a fruit salad on the table. And imagine all you liked was the cantaloupe and not the watermelon. And so what you're doing is you're clearing out the watermelon. You're taking the pieces of watermelon. Right. You Okay. You, there's a bowl. You take from the bowl and you put it into your plate. You have a mixed salad, and you have a fruit salad inside now your own plate. You're like, I don't like watermelon. So you take out the watermelon, and you put it into your cup, right? Look at this. I have a cup right here. Watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. Now I have all my cantaloupe. Now, you and I would probably say, that doesn't sound like a lot of work. That sounds like fun. But in halach and Jewish law, that is considered one of the 39 categories. The lamates melachot, one of the 39 categories of prohibited work. That is not allowed. You cannot do borer. You cannot separate. Likewise, if you're eating fish, like salmon, and there's a bone inside, to pick out the bone would be borer. You can separate the good from the bad. Ah, you can separate the good from the bad while you're eating it. So that's why I said specifically that you, you couldn't take out the watermelon. If, you're, if you have a mixed plate and you're just identifying the cantaloupe and you're eating it, right, that's fine. You can't separate the bad from the, the undesired from the desired. So again, going back to the salmon, if it has bones in it or any white fish or whatever it is, any fish that has bones, so you cannot pull the bones out of the fish. So what do you do? Either you eat only the fish and not the bones, or, a little gross, or you can spit them out, but that's why, because of that difficulty, that's why gefilte fish was born or was created. What was gefilte fish? Gefilte fish is pre deboned and and mushed and uh, ground there's no bones no bones about it i know i know but i'm saying where did that ashkenazi so there's two there's two um schools of thought number one the ashkenazim did it because of this to avoid this uh, possibility of prohibition of pulling out the bones number two they were typically very poor and gefilte fish, literally means gefilte means filled fish. Filled fish it means you have a little bit of fish, carrots and onions and, you know, breadcrumbs. You stuff it with other things, which means that you're stretching the fish, right? To feed a whole family on one smaller piece of fish. So that's the other theory. But, but there is a halakhic theory behind it that it avoids the idea of borer. 
So focusing on this prohibition of Borer, um, on Shabbos, we're not allowed to select the bad from the good. Here's the deal. The rest of the week, going back to lesson one, whenever we eat throughout the week, not Shabbat, what are we doing? We're separating, borer, the bad from the good. We eat the food and we say, exterior pleasure or, or superficial enjoyment, out. I'm, I'm in this for the spiritual energy in order to do spiritual things. Borer means when I eat, I'm, I'm separating between the physical, the gastronomical experience and the spiritual elevatory experience. I am borer, I mean mevarer. I am separating between these two spaces. During the week, that's permitted. On Shabbat, can't do it. So what do I do? How do we eat? Here's the answer. Text 12. Read it inside in a second. On Shabbat, everything is elevated. The worlds are elevated to the point that you don't need to separate between the bad and the good. It's all good. Assuming that, again, that it's kosher, it's all good and there's nothing there for it to separate. Which means even the pleasure of eating, which during the week would be distracting. Don't eat for pleasure, eat for higher purpose. Don't eat for your body, eat for your soul. That's during the week. On Shabbat, everything is elevated. Even the pleasure, even the body, even the taste of the food, the physical part of the food is holy. And that's why eating itself is a mitzvah. Not on Shabbos, eating itself, enjoying itself, that itself is a mitzvah. Not eating it for a higher purpose because this experience is, I'm getting rid of the physical part and I'm only using it for something greater. No, even the eating itself is holy on Shabbos because everything's elevated. Text 12, I'll read this. Again, the Alter Rebbe says in Torah, or the following. During the week, the process of elevating, sorry, the process of eating elevates the food which transforms into part of the human consuming it. However, eating on Shabbos consists of a higher level, which is why we are told to enjoy food on Shabbos. The verse states, you have created me last and first, indicating that the human being is both first and last in creation. What does this mean? As food exists below, a human is higher first than it, and the food is elevated through the human. However, in its source, Food derives from the lofty level of tohu, the world of chaos, and then it, and it then fell below through the shvir takelim, through the shattering of the vessels. Its lofty source is apparent in that, it, in that it is what invigorates the human, and the human receives vitality from it. In this aspect, the human is last. Let me pause here for a moment. Who's greater? Which party is greater, the person or the food? On the one hand, we say, of course, the person is higher than the food. On the other hand, the food is giving the person energy. That's all during the week. On Shabbos, he says, when the worlds ascend to their spiritual source, the food rises to its source and provides vitality to the soul from its higher plane. Which means that even the pleasure of the food is a holy experience. Again, this is assuming that... The sparks are attainable, i.e. that it's kosher food. If it's not the kosher food, the crust is still around it and that does not elevate and make it accessible like we said last time. It's still in a forbidden context. So even though there's an elevation on one hand, it's the wrong type of food. But assuming it's kosher food, on Shabbat, everything is elevated, which means even the eating 
is now a mitzvah. Sorry, even the pleasure of eating is a mitzvah. So to really bring this course full circle, and I love how we ended almost back to where we started. We started this series by presenting this Kabbalistic idea that when we eat, there's two things that are happening. We're having a physical experience and we're having a spiritual experience. And the secret of eating, of Jewish eating, Jews and food, is to focus on the spiritual part and to minimize the physical part. Sure, we enjoy it. Sure, we need it for our bodies. But the real reason why we need to eat food is for our souls and to elevate that spark. And because of that, the pleasure of the food would be a bit of a distraction. The more we're focused on the pleasure, the less we're focused on the purpose. That's during the week. But as we've come full circle, we've discovered now the final text of our series, that on Shabbos, everything changes. On Shabbos, because of the aliyat ha'olamot, because everything is elevated, even the physical part of the food is holy. Therefore, it's not a distraction to the spiritual efforts of eating because we don't need to separate. We don't need to make that distinction. Borer, we don't separate between the good and the bad. It's all good. And therefore, we enjoy Shabbat food. That's the mitzvah. And that becomes a holy experience. And so, as we get ready for Shabbat, make sure you have a delicious Shabbat dinner and Shabbat lunch. Make sure you have great Shabbat food, food that you enjoy. And in doing so, recognize that it's not just good for your body, but the pleasure itself is good for your soul. I want to thank you all for joining me for this uh, four-part series, Jews and Food. I hope you you all enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the food. And... um, Till next time. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So you guys were awesome. Thank you. Yes. You will have a great food. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually headed up tomorrow morning oh, to New York, oh, please God. Oh, because it's for the kinnis. Yeah. But not by foot. Not by foot. You, not by foot. You've been doing before. Hey, I cannot do before. You wrote this for us? Um, I, I helped compile it, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So this explains Kiddush I guess. <laughs> this explains a lot of it, right? Once that... Once we don't have to worry about the hedonistic nature of the food, I guess people go all out. <laughs> might, might as well have one day a week to really lean into that. Mira. Okay. Um, so, two questions. Number one, with the selecting, this is a practical question. If it is bad to you but good to someone else in your family, then are you still allowed to take it out? Because like we'll do that all the time. Or like, my dad doesn't like garlic, so he takes it out and puts it in my soup bowl. Absolutely. Okay, so that's that's cool. Oh, for him, to, for yeah, him so like to do him that. To take out the thing I think probably you should do that. Right. You probably you probably should do that. Okay. Ideally, I'm not saying it wouldn't be okay, because he knows he's giving it to you, which is therefore good for you. It's a it's a very nuanced question that you're asking. But I would say to avoid any question, if you take it, and there's no problem, then you're taking what you want. Okay. For him, it might still be. He's getting rid of the stuff that he doesn't want. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Might um, be. I'm not saying for sure. Just have to tell him to change his intention. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, question number two. So, in Kashrut, there's the idea of like Batul Bashishim and Batul whatever the word is for majority. Sure. So, um, you can have like non kosher parts that now are kosher mm-hmm. because they're in the kosher food. So and they're overwhelmed by the percentage. Does that change their klipa status or is it the weird case? That's that a very good question. That's a good question. In other words, when we say, so here's the classic example. You have a pot of chicken soup, big pot of chicken soup. 
and somehow a dro- one tiny drop of milk falls in the chicken soup. So what happens? So you would say, perhaps, not kosher, meat and milk. But we say no. It's kosher. As long as there's 60 more times the volume of one over the other, then the minority part that's less than 1 60th of a ratio becomes bottle, becomes nullified, and really disappears, in essence, in the larger mixture. <coughs> Sorry. So the question is like this. Your question is, does that mean when it becomes nullified, does that mean that it takes on the property of the majority? Or does it mean that it remains what it is, but it's over, overshadowed by the rest of it? Are you elevating it? Or is that, is that small fragment still not elevatable? That's a good question. I heard the opposite to that. Let's say you, what is it, you, you take, um, you, you drop enough milk in so that it's like more than one sixteenth. But then you take that pot, if you were to pour it into some larger vessel, you, the whole pot is now trafe. It's not just like the 160, mm. 159th or whatever. Like now that whole pot is drained. So if you report into something else... It becomes, it goes the other way. It becomes now yeah, forbidden. Yeah. Look, I think part of the, you know, your question, I think part of that is tied into, well, what happens if it happens one drop at a time? So let's say the volume is 1 100th. Okay, so one drop falls in, 1 100th nullified. What about two drops? What about three drops? Four drops? Five drops? At some point, but it happens one at a time, at some point, do we say that it now becomes too much to be nullified? The answer in halacha is once it's nullified, it's gone. And even if another drop would fall in, let's say you have exactly 60 drops of the meat, uh, liquid, and then one, and then one of, the, of the milk nullified. Now a second drop falls in. You would say, well, it's two against 60. doesn't work. No, it's now one against 61. Once it becomes nullified, as long as two drops, drops don't fall in simultaneously, then of course you don't have the ratio. But if it happens once, then it becomes legally bottle. And then it happens again. We don't say that the language is that the second drop wakes up the original drop and they join together. We don't say that. Once it's nullified, it's nullified. Typically, that's what we say, which would meet, which would uh, um, lead me to believe that once it's nullified, it now takes on the actual parameters of the larger mixture, which means somehow these sparks have been made accessible, which is kind of crazy to think about that. But, but you said, excuse me for interrupting, that it disappeared. Right. So maybe it's no longer present. Not that it changes. Right. But it's gone. Can yeah. Totally disappear? That makes more sense. Well, the question is if legally we say it disappears, but like what, what, what is its status? I mean, it is still there. So what is its status? Is it status of milk that has been nullified or is it now the status of the meat itself? So if it really disappears, what that means is it's really assimilated, as it were, into that other mixture, which may, which may lead us to believe that it actually takes on the properties of the larger mixture, which means that now those sparks are accessible. Now, again, I'm speculating. It's a really good question, and I don't know 
you know, I, I don't know that I've seen that discussed. I, I would imagine it is discussed. This is my, um, you know, hypothesis. May not be true. May not be, be accurate. But it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a stab at the question. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Well, I'm thinking you could set up a little device that drops a little. Uh, I know. Here's the problem. You can't, you can't intentionally do that. By the way, if you intentionally do it, it's not nullified. Right? By the way, you guys know that, um, Mira, you know that if you intentionally nullify it, it's not nullified. Yeah. Because what's the whole point of nullification? You didn't want it, and now it's there. So, But if you wanted it there, it means that it's significant. This is the whole sherry cask scotch situation. That's the whole debate. Sherry is a wine that the assumption is it's not kosher. So when, when, um, when Glenn Livid sells bottles of scotch that are um, aged in sherry casks, it means basically casks of wine that's presumably not kosher. The question is, does that affect the, the scotch in those casks? So some say... No, because the amount of sherry that's absorbed in the walls of the, of the cask relative to the scotch is less than 1 60th, for sure. There's no actual sherry there. It's, it's sherry absorbed in the wood that may leach out or come out with the, into the scotch. Come on. But others say that the fact that they write on the bottle sherry casks means that it it does make a difference. It does change the flavor, the color, the hue, the appearance, and the price of the scotch, which means how can you ever say it's nullified? How can you say it's nullified if literally the manufacturer is saying it's a feature, right? This is going to enhance your scotch. However, it's a, it's a big debate in halacha. Remember a few years ago, the London Betin, the rabbis in London, came out and said, um, when asked, they said that it's fine. And they said, if anybody has a problem with that, they understand because it's a complicated subject. But what they should do, if they were given it or they bought it previously, they should just give it to us. <laughs> right. If you have a problem with it, you can give it to us and we'll, ta- and we'll take care of it. <laughs> they, they will take one for the team. Um, but it's interesting that it's always been a, a, a debate back and forth. Coca-Cola had this issue. Coca-Cola originally used, when they originally applied for kosher certification. It was with an Atlanta rabbi. His name was Rabbi, wait, his name was, I want to say Rabbi Katz, um, a local rabbi. Like this was like decades ago in the 19, I don't know. Yeah, or, or if not earlier. So um, they used a, um, I'm forgetting all the details. They used something called glycerin. They use an animal glycerin in the, in the ingredients. So, um, well, first of all, there's another issue. You can't have a secret ingredient and have a kosher. No? Because the rabbi has to know what's in it to certify it as kosher. Here, here, I'll tell you all the ingredients except for one. Can you certify this? The answer is absolutely not. So what they did was they gave him a list of ingredients. Some of them were fake. Not fake ingredients, but not in the formula. So the rabbi doesn't know the actual formula, but he knows everything that's in, the, that's in Coca-Cola. Plus, a lot of things that are totally not. So they'll bring, even to this day, the rabbi that certifies the concentrate and the, and the things, 
they'll show him all of the package, all of the stuff, including stuff that's not in the formula, so that no one really knows the formula. Yeah, I'd heard that the, there was a rabbi in Chicago, Rabbi Goldswag, who they used to say he worked with Coca-Cola and he knew the formula. Maybe. That was Rabbi Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. He, he leaked. So anyway, so they had non-kosher glycerin originally, an animal glycerin. And so the question was, can you somehow certify it because it's less than 160th? So, uh, I mean, but you can't, even if it's less than 160th, you can't do it intentionally. But then the argument was, well, uh, you know, a Jew didn't do it. The company did it. And they're not, you know, they're, they're, they don't have to adhere to kosher standards. If it's already done and it's nullified, so you can't nullify it. But if it's already nullified, then can you drink it? No, because the glycerin is a key ingredient in it, whatever it is. Rabbi, oh, no, Tobi, not cats, Tobias Geffen. That was his name, Tobias Geffen. He said, I'm not giving the, cert the cert certification without, with the animal glycerin. They developed a plant-based glycerin, specifically for Coca-Cola to make it kosher. They changed the formula to make it kosher. Look at that. Jews changed Coke. Classic Coke is not really classic Coke. Correct. Well, I mean, super classic Coke had cocaine in it. That's true. Super yeah. classic. Yeah, right. The, yeah. the OG. They used to do a run of original. They, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they would get a lot of business. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been a really amazing journey. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I know it's been, it's been awesome to have you guys here. Dasi, welcome. All right. I'm glad you got it in. Um, yeah, you before we wrap. Uh, should we carry the... Sure. You guys can grab some more food, take some to go. Please enjoy. All right. Thank you all.